Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, ladies and gentlemen, the team captain of Team Captain. He is, of course, our captain. Well, we had an incident this week, and I was booted off the team. <laughs> but it's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. I'll start another team, and we'll take over this world. Tonight we are drinking Julius. We needed a little sunshine, Captain, and I couldn't bring that to you, so I brought you the very next best thing. Julius by the fine team of awesomeness that is the Treehouse Brewing Company. Garage grade four and a half bottle caps out of five. Wow, that's some high that's some high marks, my friend. High praise from a high guy. <laughs> What does that mean? I don't know what that means. All right. Julius was brought to us by these awesome garage goers. First up, we have Chelsea, who writes, Thank you for getting me through countless hours of travel. Well, thank you, Chelsea, for having such great taste in beer and great taste in podcasts. Oh, my God. Watch out for that deer. And a big shout out to Lydia from Parts Unknown. And a thank you to Cortland at Beale Air Force Base in California and her twin sister, Caitlin. Cheers to you both. And a big we like your jib. Marcella in Mount Holly, North Carolina. And a shout out to Kelsey in Saratoga Springs, Utah. And last but not least, we have Tracy in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So thank you all for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to buy us around for next week, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And we're a little bit behind on the beer shout outs, but we really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for keeping the lights on in the garage. We couldn't do it without you. And also, if you want to follow us on social media, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Untapped, all of that at True Crime Garage. And if you're saving your beer money for yourself and for your own fridge, but you want to help out the show anyway, go to iTunes and please leave us a five-star review. That's enough of the business, Captain. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. (laughs) 
Kentucky Friday, May 17, 1968. Wilbur Riddle, he's a water well driller, found the dead body of a young woman while walking around at a job site just off of Interstate 25 near Georgetown, Kentucky. He immediately reported his findings to the local authorities. What they found is startling. Someone had killed the young woman and wrapped her in some kind of canvas bag or tarp and tying up the bundle with rope. Inside, the young woman was nude, cause of death, most likely asphyxiation. With a murdered victim and a homicide investigation underway, the most troubling part for the investigators, they don't know who the woman is. They have received many tips and leads in dozens of missing women reports, yet the victim remains nameless. Mm -hmm. Newspapers dubbed her Tent Girl because of the material she was wrapped up in, Several had pointed out that it looked like the type of material one would use for a tent or a bag that would carry a tent. Well, Wilbur Riddle retired about 20 years after finding the body. And still 20 years later, they had not identified the woman known as Tent Girl. Wilbur, like the local sheriff and detectives that had worked so hard on the case, still was not satisfied that she had never been identified. Refusing to let the case go cold in his life, Wilbur told his children about him finding the girl and showed them the newspaper and magazine articles when they were old enough to hear of such a tale. One day he told his son-in-law, Todd Matthews. Todd was fascinated by the case. Todd started spending much of his time researching the tent girl case. And Captain, you know this feeling. You know how, how, how this works. It turned into an obsession for him. Yeah. You digging. Go, you go down a rabbit hole and you can't get out, my friend. Digging deeper and deeper. He located and studied the FBI's lab report on the white towel found wrapped up with the body. In the report, it stated that the towel could have been used as a baby's diaper. Mm -hmm. This prompted Todd to believe that the tent girl was older than the investigators had thought. And she could have been a mother. He wrote to the authorities explaining his reasoning about the tent girl's age. He also wrote to the county coroner seeking to have the tent girl's remains exhumed so that her pelvic area could be re-examined to see whether she had been a mother. Well, the tough thing here is he's just an armchair detective. Yeah. So he's not going to get anywhere. I mean, you can make all the requests you want. They don't have to do anything. Yeah, I mean, these things cost money. They take up time. Um, this is a very old investigation by this point. Um, it's at least 20 years old. Eventually, he would make, uh, Todd Matthews would make the 200-mile trip from his home to see the tent girl's gravesite. At around the same time, uh, he visited the undertaker of the cemetery who had handled her burial and the local newspaper as well, mm -hmm. where he had learned that there had been no new developments in this case in the entire you know 20 years ever since it went cold. In the 90s, Todd got a little help with his research with the, you know, now what we take for granted, the internet. Right. Uh, he began searching missing persons websites for clues to Tent Girl's identity. Well, yeah, I mean... There was no schools for a computer back then. <laughs> well, it, can you imagine how much time this would take? Um, you have all these, especially back then in the in the nineties. You got all these kind of random 
missing persons websites that are popping up. Right. And you also have to, in my opinion, uh, maybe not so much at the time or not so much for Todd, but you also have to question some of the things that you're seeing on these sites, um, question how well they were cataloged appropriately with the correct information. I still think you have to do that. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe it's a little easier for his situation because he's looking for some, maybe some very specific things amongst a crowd of many. Well, Todd eventually, you know, after searching all these sites, you know, he doesn't really get anywhere with this. So he decides that he wanted to create a website devoted to the tent girl Mm -hmm. where people could learn about the case or for the many that still wanted to know who she was. Um, and you know, a lot of times people hear these cases and, and this is the case even to this, this day, a lot of people remember a case from when they were a kid or from an area where they grew up, maybe they move away. They never know if the case was ever solved or what took place since the time that they were out living life. And so he thought, you know, what a great place for people to come in and check in on this case to see if it was ever solved uh, or just check in to kind of relive what they already knew. Yeah, or somebody could stumble upon the case and go, wait a second, I know that person. Mm-hmm. Or, or see if any positive movement was made on this now very cold case. Well, Todd got great, he got really good traffic uh, to the site. And he got a lot of emails, but none of these turned out to be the lead that he was looking for. Then late one night, this is January of 1998, Todd was scouring the web for clues like he had done so many nights before. On this night, he was on another missing persons website. He had poured over and tore through hundreds of descriptions of missing people that evening when one caught his attention and it was simply titled Lexington, Kentucky, 1967 missing. Okay. So not too far. Yeah. So 1998, remember the tent girl was found in 1968. So now 30 years later, captain, and we still don't know who tent girl is, but on this website, someone named Rosemary Westbrook had posted details of what they say is the following. My sister, Barbara, has been missing from our family since the latter part of 1967. She has brown hair, brown eyes, and is around five feet, two inches tall and was last seen in Lexington, Kentucky or the Lexington, Kentucky area. Okay. If you have any information, please contact me at the address posted. So this post is for Barbara Ann Hackman slash Taylor or dash Taylor, I should say. Right. Um, she was born December, 1943, last seen sometime late 1967. Well, Todd Matthews, he contacted this Rosemary Westbrook who posted the missing person's description. She, she didn't, she didn't post a picture. Mm, I don't think there was a picture on this website. But I mean, look, I mean, for listeners that don't know back in the day to put like a picture uh, on the interwebs. I mean, that was kind of a tricky thing. You could crash the whole internet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, <laughs> and I can only tell you that because I studied computer right, right. for 14 years. You know, he had, he had, the colonel has jokes, people. He has dad jokes. Well, so Todd Matthews contacted this Rosemary Westbrook. She told him that, uh, 
that Barbara Ann Hackman Taylor was her sister. And she was about 20, she was 24 years old and the mother of a baby girl when she had vanished in December of 1967. Well, and his hunch was that this person was older than, you know, the tent girl was older than the police thought she was. Yeah. I mean, this, that's not going to deter Todd Matthews where we saw back in 68 and 69, the detectives were turning leads away because of obvious factors. It wasn't the right height wasn't the right weight, maybe not the right age. Right. Todd doesn't care about age because, as you pointed out, he believes the victim to have been older than the, the police suspect. Okay, so this is a solid lead for Todd. But, again, this this is a lead that police could have came across, you know, in 68 or 69. Uh, but So Todd has this lead, and he's going to hold on to it. We have the sister saying that um, her sister Barbara had been working at some type of Lexington, Kentucky restaurant. Okay. Uh, she was married to a guy named George Earl Taylor at that time. Now, George was a carnival worker. Uh, so he's a carny, you know, as Mike Myers would say, small hands smells like cabbage, <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's the strange thing. Man, if that wasn't strange is, enough, what is in your beer? <laughs> you don't remember that part from, uh, what was that? Austin Powers. Uh, must be because you rated it a 4.5. Austin Powers. He's afraid of carnival, of carnies. Oh, okay. So you have small hands and they smell love, like cabbage. I love carnies. So all the carnies out there listening, captain's on your side. Me? Not a fan. <laughs> but here's the, here's the strange thing. So I guess at the time, you know, back in, in 67 and 68, uh, none of her family knew that that Barbara was in Kentucky at that time. Okay. Where's she originally from? Uh, she was from Florida and you say, well, how does this happen? Uh, uh, apparently Barbara who actually went by the nickname Bobby to her family. She was seen by her family down in Florida in December of 67 when she visited her family. I'm not exactly sure of who in her family she visited with. And, and we'll get to that in a moment, but According to her little sister, Rosemary, who spoke with Todd, when she was last seen, it was with George Earl Taylor, her husband, and with her eight-month-old daughter. And, of course, no one reported her as missing at that time either. At some point, another sister of Barbara's had later reported her missing in the state of Florida because this is where this was the last state that she was known to have lived in. The family was told that Barbara and George were going to North Carolina to live. Yeah, not too far from uh, Florida. And right. Going there to for a job, I'm assuming. Going there, yep, to for a job and to create a whole life there, you know, live their days there, raise their child there. Uh-huh. Neither George nor Barbara ever mentioned anything about Kentucky to any of her family members. Um, and the reason why I wanted to say I, we would get into that in a moment regarding of I don't know who she was there to visit as far as her family goes. She she came from a rather large fam- family. Barbara's mom and father had six kids. No, I'm sorry. They had seven children. Wow. So they had seven children. But, but at some point, there was a flood and there was a tragic um accident or, 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 you know, some tragedy that took place because of this flood. Her husband, Barbara's father, and Barbara's brother had passed away in this flood. Mm. 
Well, unfortunately, Barbara's mom with the remaining six kids, she couldn't afford them. She couldn't, she couldn't take care of them after losing her husband. Right. So eventually she had to give up her children. You know, the family, I don't know if they were, if they were placed separately, but it sounds to me like the family did their best to try to stay close. Obviously we can understand the, the obvious obstacle that, that is going on here. So I don't know how close the family remained at the point when she was last seen in 1967. Well, it's pretty interesting because you wonder why the change of plans or was the plan to go to North Carolina just a a front to begin with because, one, the only way you're going to be able to communicate really is a very expensive phone call, Mm -hmm. uh, expensive trip to go see them okay, well, we're going to just tell the family that we're moving to North Carolina, but that doesn't mean we have to move there. Well, the tricky thing, though, too, is, I mean, think about George's, you know, Barbara's husband's job. So, you know, and I'm, it's a little unclear if, you know, when we say he worked for carnivals, well, you know, usually these things travel around. And so he would be essentially you would think traveling around with these, with this carnival that he worked for. Now, was this a, a, you know, the only job in his career that he ever had? Probably not. Uh, Maybe he was looking to do something where he could just live in a city and work in that city and not have to travel around. Yeah. We don't, we don't know the reason for there to be this thought that we would go to North Carolina and then she seems to end up, Barbara's sister seems to end up with some kind of evidence that at some point she was in Kentucky. Right. We have, let's go back to Barbara's husband, George. The, he told Barbara's family that he didn't know where Barbara could be. He simply told them but that. Where is he telling them this from? Is he in Kentucky at this point? I don't know when this conversation took place. Okay. Full disclosure here. All we know is that. Barbara says that, I'm sorry, Rosemary says that she last saw Barbara in December of 1967, that that's when her family last saw her in the state of Florida. In Florida. They're planning, they tell them they're going to North Carolina. Somehow years later, she ends up with information that her sister was in Lexington, Kentucky at some point. Right. So at some point, she becomes an armchair detective. She's looking for her uh, sister and she gets evidence that, hey, she ended up, we don't know if she ended up with her husband in Kentucky, but we know that she ended up in Kentucky. Right. And we have the husband that speaks with Barbara's family at some point. Again, we don't know when this conversation took place. Right. I get the impression, though, that this conversation took place because of Barbara's family, that somehow they reached out to this, um, reached out to George. So he tells them that he didn't know where Barbara was and that she had run off with another man. Mm. Okay. So now we talked yesterday about that strange, you know, these strange little stories that you come across when you start looking into these old crimes and these old cases. We talked about the, the poem in the, uh, in the yearbook, in the yeah. yearbook. Yes. That's a, a bit of a strange story. Here's one for you for today regarding this incident. Remember, we said that Barbara's sister, Rosemary, had been looking for her for some time. Right. She actually reported Barbara as missing to the Lexington Police Department. This took place on October 31st of 1995. Hmm. This is like 25, almost 30 years later. She's calling this in. 
pay attention to that date that I gave you too, because the later the well, le- repeat it for us, please. It was October thirty first, nineteen ninety five. Okay. The, the the Lexington police actually have no record of this phone call with Rosemary reporting her sister is missing. They have no missing persons report. None that was taken on that day that she said that she called in. None that was ever taken for this Barbara Hackman Taylor ever. Okay. Um, well, how does that make any sense? Because when when this person, Rosemary Westbrook, called in from another state, all these years later to report her sister as being missing from 20, 20 some years ago on Halloween, the Lexington police thought that it was a prank. So they never took the report when she called in that day. (laughs) Why would they? That's a dumb prank. Well, it it makes you gotcha. (laughs) It it makes you angry. You know, it makes you question them and, and wonder why. Um, yeah, like, and I'm, I'm not trying to have their back here. I'm just wondering how many weird phone calls they get on Halloween. Well, I'm sure they get a bunch and I'm sure they're all hopped up on candy corn, but come on, take down the report. I mean, it's not like, you know, they came up and said, Hey, we have a missing person from Lexington, Kentucky. What's their name? Seymour butts. Ha ha ha. Got you. No, we're talking about <laughs> just like a normal name. Well, you know maybe I mean? whoever answered that phone that day in 95 should be relocated from the police department to work for the carnival. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Step right up. Yes. So now Rosemary told Todd Matthews, remember Todd, he's the armchair detective. She told Todd that she was only 10 years old when her sister Barbara had disappeared. And she agreed with Todd that there were enough similarities between Barbara's case and the tent girl case to warrant further investigation. Todd tried to get the proper authorities involved, but he, but you know, they have other cases. They, so, okay. So let's go back. Cause I think you glazed over something. So Barbara was missing basically since she was 10. No, Rosemary is Barbara's little sister. Okay. So when Rosemary was 10, Rosemary was okay. a lot younger. She was 14 years younger than her. Barbara was 24 and Rosemary was only 10 last time she saw her sister in okay. 1967. That makes more sense. Sorry. Yeah. He, he, you know, he's trying to get the, the Kentucky authority authorities involved in this case again. Of course they have newer cases. They have fresher leads on these new cases. Uh, initially they weren't going to be jumping through hoops to help out Todd, so Todd Matthews, he did the detective, some detective work himself as much as he could. And after he put together a proper presentation, which after hearing would leave anyone with just a, you know, one thought, it's time to exhume the body of the tent girl and conduct DNA tests. Right. And they're going to test the DNA of uh, tent girl with Barbara's sister. Correct. It was, it took a little over a month, but in uh, March of 1998, tent girl was exhumed and her remains were sent to a laboratory in Frankfurt, Kentucky. The first thing they were able to conclude was that the tent girl was between the ages of 20 and 30 years old. Okay. So, you know, you keep pointing out new technology and you're exactly right. Captain with our technology. Now we're saying, well, we, we had the, the age wrong. It wasn't, she right. wasn't 16 to 19. We believe her now to be 20 to 30 years old. So older than originally thought and good for Todd. Cause he was right with his, what he suspected yeah. and still possible that Rosemary is right. That this could be her 24 year old sister. 
After finding that out, it was time to see if Rosemary was related to the tent girl. So they collected DNA for comparison. It was in April of 1998. They got the results back. The test found that Rosemary's DNA genetically matched that of the tent girl. Yeah. Who therefore had to be Barbara and Hackman Taylor. Wow. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And once again, and it's so crazy too, that the, that the guy that found her, his son-in-law goes on to identify her. Yeah. I don't want to sound too hippie, you know, but it's almost like maybe her spirit was there helping guide them along or something. Well, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of neat things here going on because you have Wilbur who refused to forget about this case. You know, he finds this girl, he retires 20 years later. He refuses to forget about, Oh, I found this girl and they never, they never named her. Right. He'd let that bother him. He let it bother him for 20 years to the point where once his kids were old enough, he told them, this is what happened. This was, this was a big part of my life. This is a, this is the weight that I've been walking around with on my shoulders for 20 years. Well, and when the kids didn't listen, they didn't do anything about it. He, said, <laughs> he's, he started talking to his son-in-law, the, the person that had to listen. That's you right. know, he had to listen. Like, oh yeah, this is my father-in-law. I have to. Listen. No, but it's pretty remarkable. Now we have a name. Uh, now we can start searching for motive and suspects. Let's get right back to the case of a body in Kentucky after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, 
language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add ons to choose from every week, You'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem. And it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. And what's that sound? Uh, switching from beer to burn. Clinkity clinky. It's my new addiction. All right. <laughs> get a uh, hold get a hold of yourself i just love it well okay so captain we have we have finally 30 years later and finally we have the identity of the tent girl okay now the authorities well we got some tough questions that need to be answered 
Well, and we only really have one lead, really. Yes, uh, because this would be that of her husband. You know, maybe, hopefully, char- hopefully they could ask him some questions, straighten out this whole matter. If need be, maybe bring him up on some kind of charges. Mm-hmm. But that would not be possible because George Earl Taylor died of cancer in October of 1987. So he passed away, you know, 12 years before they even figured out who the tent girl was. Right. And so they can't ask him questions. So all we can go off of is that he claims that she left him for another man. Yeah. And it seems to be the belief of Barbara's family and some of the the authorities involved that Barbara's husband, George Earl Taylor, was most likely the person who had killed 24-year-old Barbara Hackman Taylor back in 68. Um, If this is true, he then wrapped up her body in one of his canvas tarps or bags used for carrying his carnival tents from town to town and dumped her in an out-of-the-way spot off of the interstate, hoping that she would decompose as much as possible before anyone found her. Um, I guess he did do a little bit of moving around from time to time, so I guess... more difficult. Yeah. I guess the thought is if they couldn't ID her, that this would never catch up with him. Um, and and then the, then her daughter might not even know that her, her mother is tent girl. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and the other thought too, is like you said, you know, he simply tells her family, Barbara's family that she ran off with some other guy and he's got to believe that they would accept this theory because heck she had run off with him when they claim to have been going to North Carolina. Right. Yeah. And a couple of weird things here. I mean, if there was no sexual assault and it's not really, really reported that there was, that would make sense. You know, her husband killing her. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I think it's safe to say that someone had killed her. And I start off by saying that because there were, you know, there were no signs to the cause of death. So that makes you wonder immediately, but this, According to the autopsy report, no signs of cause of death, but because she was dis- discarded, uh, it's obvious to me that someone had killed her and tried to cover this up. It, yeah, co- or- it could have been an accident. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it certainly could have been an accidental death um, where whoever killed her didn't mean to, uh, that some kind of fight broke out between the two of them. We know that there's that discoloration that was on the skull. Um, I, right. It is very possible because of the sign of the times and also they're, you know, they're traveling around in a carnival show. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many drugs are going through those people's systems? It has to be a lot, right? Could be. So it, there's a good possibility, like I said, that maybe it was an OD. I mean, because we've seen that like in the Vanishing Girls, the girls in Chillicothe. There was a couple times where bodies were discarded but it was more likely that because because of the sign, there was no sign of uh, strangulation or mm-hmm. blunt force trauma or anything like that. So, you know, the belief is that maybe that they were OD'd and that they were dumped. It could be possible here as well. Well, let's keep in mind two things that we know happened. All right. When it comes to the husband, when it comes to George Earl Taylor, first off, he never reported his wife missing to anyone. 
anywhere at any time that we know of. Right. You know, he he's never called the police and said, my wife is missing. Now, you, it's easy to say, well, why would he if she did run off with some other man? Right. You know, if I had a girlfriend, she ran off with another man. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call, call right. in that she's missing. Hey, she's missing. Well, and, not if you're not missing. And her. if you find her, oh. charge her with breaking my heart. <laughs> right. So anyway, the, I get that. All right. right. She's equally, not reported missing mm-hmm. because she ran off with some other man. But here's the thing. At no point over the course of 20 some years before the guy died, he never bothers to tell her family at any time. Oh, we did live in Kentucky for a little bit before she ran off with this guy, you know? So, yeah, but who, right. But at that point, if you just don't care, like this lady left me, you know, I'm raising our kid by ourselves, Mm -hmm. by myself. Um, it'd be interesting to locate the daughter and to find out what she knew. No, but what I mean is we know that a conversation happened between somebody in Barbara's family and George Earl Taylor. Because he tells that family member she ran off with another guy. Nowhere in that conversation does he mention the the name of Kentucky to anybody. And I think that... Enough. I mean, what if the story of them going to North Carolina was actually true? And then when they were doing their armchair detective, they went, okay, well, we know that Barbara went to Kentucky at some point. Like I said before, we don't know if she went to Kentucky with him or without him. Right. I No, I can agree with that because I don't have 100% proof in front of me that that anyone can prove that the two of them went there together. I believe that there are people that have, they have some inkling that that's what happened. That there, there may be something that ties the two of them still together and being in the state of Kentucky early in 1968. Which that, that makes the, that makes the, um, the likelihood that somebody else was the killer, very small. Yeah, but the eyewitness, and we kind of talked about this before, but the, the eyewitness that claims that he saw Barbara with some guy and he was driving them and they argued and he dropped them off. If he correctly identified the person as Barbara, then who's this other guy? Mm-hmm. And maybe that you know leans to George's side of the story as well. Right. Um, so, I mean, it basically, at this point in this much time... Um, you're not going to get any answers. Yeah. I mean, barring barring some deathbed confession by somebody that um, that comes forward, you're, you're not going to get a solid answer as to who killed Barbara Hackman Taylor. You, you just won't. My suspicion as far as those, as the motorist and those eyewitnesses go... My suspicion is that they were that they saw somebody that night that right. that the, whatever they said happened absolutely happened. The problem I have with it is at the time that they're calling in that tip, they're going under the impression that the tent girl is 16 to 19 years of age, right? where we later learn that she's 24. It just like so many people had called in before these two tipsters. And said, you know what? That's my daughter that's missing. That's my niece. That's my girlfriend. Whomever. Right. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of these people calling in saying that that's my loved one. And none of those turned out to be correct. So my thought is that those two tipsters were just wrong. 
just like all those other people that had called in before them. And I think that had they known... Well, they're not wrong. They're just wrong on the person that they saw. Right, right. Right. Thank you for clearing that up. They're they're right in what happened happened, and what they're reporting is true. They've just misidentified this person as being the tent girl. A lot more hitchhikers back then. And here's my thing, too. I think that, that had... They known in, in 1968 that this woman was 23 or 24, 25. If they had the age more correct on this, then it may have been, it probably would have been solved a lot earlier. I mean, every record of her that was on paper and on, on, you know, databases and on websites and computers for all these years had her listed as 16 to 19. Yeah. I wonder where the investigation would have went if they would have been able to identify her that quickly too, because then like we said, we have a link back to George, her, her husband. Mm -hmm. And that also makes you wonder about some other things too. If they were off on the age, which we've seen this in other cases before, you know, we talked about this a lot when we were going through the Texas killing field Mm -hmm. because there were so many girls and women being found that had decomposed, that had laid there in the field for a while. Mm -hmm. Some that are still unidentified to this day. Age can be a very tough thing to determine. However, I think that that also leads you to believe that there were probably other misconceptions about what they had found, about the remains that they had found. There's a possibility that the cause of death that they have listed is wrong as well. Right. You know, and I think, I think that, Pointing out that her age is wrong probably points out that there are a few a few other things wrong with that whole report. I'm glad that they were able to identify her, but it just raises more questions. Well, I I do want to point out that you know, like we said, Barbara's family and the local authorities went on record uh, publicly stating that they believe her husband to have been the one that killed her and dumped her body. Now that doesn't prove anything. But here's what that leads me to believe. It leads me to believe that somehow and somewhere, right. you know, they didn't just make the identification on Tent Girl and then go, oh, her husband's dead. Oh, well, that's it. We yeah. can't do anything with this. They would have still spoke to people. They would have now they would have looked and said, does this give us any leads? Is there anybody that we can go out to and talk to now that we're armed with this information? So they would have done that, and then they may have been able to determine, if they could determine that the two of them were both present in the state of Kentucky in early 1968, right. I think that's where you just go, okay, in, in, in the court of law, could you get a conviction here? No. But in the garage, it looks like... Well, from Nick? It looks like, <laughs> yeah, but... It, it, he hands out convictions all the time. That's right. Um, it looks to me like the, the probability of George Earl Taylor having killed his wife is so much higher than the the possibility of it being a stranger. And don't Google him because when you do, you're going to get a different George Earl Taylor. And he actually murdered two of his wives. Well, I think what, what you end up finding is just Earl Taylor. Right, um, right, right. I don't think you get a George Earl Taylor, which we were not able to confirm that it's the same person. It actually is not the same. It can't person. be the same person. No, we know that the guy I think was sentenced in like nineteen. But this guy was a wife killer. 
Right. He so killed when, like two wives. So right when you look it up, you go, oh, well, well of course it was this guy. But yeah. No, he just killed guy. his first wife that, that nobody even knew about. But yeah, that's not the case. So um, what happens with the other people in this case? Well, let's. Okay. So we have um, we have Todd Matthews. Good for him. Cheers to you, Todd. Yes. Cheers. Yes. Because here's the thing. After all of Todd Matthews' hard work and determination, he believes, too, that George Earl Taylor was the killer. He mm-hmm. believes that George Earl Taylor's tale that Barbara had left him for another man was just simply a way to cover up and to hide his crime. He does state that Barbara's death could indeed have been an accident mm-hmm. and that he, you know, the husband dumped the body. But I'll tell you what, Captain, you want to talk about web sleuthing. This here, Todd, Todd Matthews is the man. I mean, while we don't have a conviction, he still solved a 30 year mystery. Right. So Wilbur's son-in-law, uh, Wilbur Riddle's son-in-law, you know, he put a name to the woman that he had found 30 years before. Now, Todd Matthew Matthews, he says, I kind of like this. He says Riddle's riddle had been solved. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wilbur Riddle paid tribute to his son-in-law saying that he, Todd Matthews has put in more than a thousand hours on this case. There is no one in law enforcement. There is no law enforcement office that had worked harder on any case than he did on this one. Very good for him. So giving him very high praise, the story of the tent girl inspired the creation of the Kentucky state medical examiner's office back in 1968 and in more recent years, Todd Matthews, uh, he got involved with a project called Eden, which I guess is just E-D-A-N, which stands for Everyone Deserves a Name. Mm-hmm. Todd has also done quite a bit of work for the Doe Network, which we have discussed several times. Uh, but for those of you who have not heard of the Doe Network, it is an international volunteer group attempting to organize many missing persons and identified cold cases. But we still have a few more questions, right, Captain? Because what became of this eight-month-old daughter that was last seen? Now, I couldn't find any news stories. I was looking for news stories that would be like, you know, woman woman in this area finally finds out who her mother really was. Right, right. Uh, I couldn't find any news stories like that. If anybody is local to this case and knows of those and wants to send them our way, please do so at truecrimegarage.com. But what I did find was I went and I looked at the current headstone for the tent girl, which we now know as Barbara Hackman Taylor. Mm-hmm. And on that headstone, it says loving mother, grandmother, and sister. So I'm guessing that the that the eight-year-old daughter grew up to have a normal life, as normal as you can without having your mother around. And but went she, on, you're right. She ended up knowing who her mother was. Yeah, and went on to have kids of her own. So there's a bit of a silver lining and and happy ending to that. You also have to wonder, well, whatever happened with the Candace Clothier case? This was the case that we talked about was a possible connection that maybe these two murders were linked. The girl from Pennsylvania. Well, if you believe that George Earl Taylor killed his wife then you got to kind of jump to the conclusion that they weren't killed by the same person, right? Right. So you have to wonder. So now this case too basically took a lot of years to crack. In fact, it took 42 years until there was a development in this case. So yeah, 42 years later, authorities say that they have cracked and closed the cold case. They say 
the they say that Candace Clothier fell victim to drugged out acquaintances who forcibly injected her with some sort of controlled substance. When the injection killed her, the attackers stuffed Clothier's body into a laundry bag, mm. tying it around her neck and using her yellow turtleneck sweater to cover her head. And then they tied her up and put her into what they're now calling a laundry bag rather than just a canvas bag. Right. They then left her body in a secluded section of the Twisted Creek. She lay partially submerged, undetected, for nearly five weeks until fishermen found her. This all came about from a tip. This was in 2005. A woman called police. She said she believed she had owned the bag that Candace was found in. This was a laundry bag. Authorities said that they believe three men were involved in Clothier's death and are now all dead themselves. Hmm. So for this police to the, so because of this, the police refused to identify the men, uh, but also saying if any of those men had been alive when police received this information, even if they were clinging to life support in a nursing home, we would be working to gather evidence with which to achieve a murder conviction. And like I said before, that was my, one of my suspicions right when we started investigating the case with tank girl was overdose. Yeah. So, so I, I guess the way that this came about, uh, to, to kind of put an end to the Candace Clothier case was that they featured her cold case on the NBC 10 channel locally. And after the newscast, a viewer, some, a woman that had seen the broadcast called police and reported that she believed that the sack that the fishermen found her in was her laundry bag missing since she had gave it to her husband shortly after Clothier had disappeared. And now this is what they believe happened. That Clothier left her home intending to visit her boyfriend. Instead, uncharacteristically, she accepted a ride with someone that she somewhat knew. Mm-hmm. who was in a car with at least one other man at the time. Instead of taking her to her boyfriend's, the men took Clothier to a wooded area off of Decanter Street in northeast Philadelphia. Philadelphia, sorry, The men had a history of drug use, and one of them was known to inject drugs, and in, this is a strange thing. I, 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 sometimes when they just put a sentence in a story, you wish they would back it up with some kind of story or evidence because this is a strange sentence to read. Mm-hmm. One of the men was known to inject drugs into animals and people without their consent, a retired detective said. Mm-hmm. They believe, detectives believe that Clothier died after she was involuntarily injected or given an unknown controlled substance. The men then called a third man to help them dump the corpse off of Chain Bridge which is on route 232. And like we said, the authorities would not name the three individuals that they believe to have been responsible for Candace's death and dumping her there. Now they did the same thing. They did further investigation. If there were people that were still around that they could talk to with that new information, they did. And they had bits and pieces of it enough to believe that they've, they've been able to put together the three who committed this crime The interesting thing, though, here, Captain, is while we don't have a conviction and while they won't name these guys because they died, they did go on to say that the trio that 
they blamed for Clothier's death. They were among those that were interviewed decades ago when the case was still very active. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm glad for both of those cases that there is some closure for the family mm-hmm. and for the victims as well. Well, and it's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel kind of situation in both those cases, right? And here's here's a little inspiration to this case should be inspiration to anybody that's out there looking for a lost one. You know, we have we have Rosemary Westbrook who was able to finally locate her sister even it being a sad truth, a sad ending, but it's probably what she or somewhat she had expected all this time, but she's able to get answers 30 years later. And then you also have the armchair detective who gets obsessed, completely obsessed with the case. And he's one of the lucky ones that gets some resolve and some answer to his, his mystery that he was working on. Right. So the moral of the story is if you're sitting there at work and you're diving down rabbit holes and you think to yourself, "Uh, maybe I can solve it. And then one day you think to yourself, why am I doing this? Keep going. Maybe you're the one that's going to crack a case. It's the old don't give up. Don't ever give up. Right, Captain? Yeah. Or take a lot of naps. Do we have a recommended reading for this week? This week we are recommending Garden State Gangland. The Rise of the Mob in New Jersey by Scott Dietschy. The mafia in the United States might be a shadow of its former self, but in the New York and New Jersey metro area, there are still wise guys and wannabes working scams, extorting businesses, running gambling, selling drugs, and branching out into white-collar crimes. And they are continuing a tradition that's over 100 years old. Some of the most powerful mobsters on the national level were from New Jersey, and they've spread their tentacles down to Florida, across the Atlantic, and out to California. And many of the stories that have never been told are in this book, The Garden State Gangland, The Rise of the Mob in New Jersey. And you can find that title with the rest of our recommended titles at truecrimegarage.com. Click on the recommended page. Yeah, we're not doing the Amazon banner anymore. They uh, kicked us out. (laughs) So so just go to Amazon on your own time or go wherever you want. Uh, wherever books are sold. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend, you crazy people. All right. We'll see everybody back here in the garage next week. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 